podcast. I am Camilla, your high vibe advocate. Give me 15 minutes and I will give you a high vibe world. I was just an immigrant, non-English speaking child in the beginning of uh, the the late 90s. The first time that I uh, stood up following all of the other kids leads in middle school for the Pledge of Allegiance. I want to start by saying that I absolutely love this country and I am grateful for all of the great things that it has given me, especially the sense of safety, which is something that I didn't have and still wouldn't have in Brazil. I pledged and still pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands. One nation, under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. I am an American. I wasn't born here, but I came here uh, at my parents' volition and free will. They were invited to come, came here legally. You know, the way that many people and many of the descendants of most other people did. And I became a citizen of this country, ready to defend it, fight for it, work hard to contribute to its society, and also to intellectually contribute to its continued improvement. Because of my privileged position, and out of a sense of duty to enlighten and educate if and when I can, I want to bring your attention to a very important topic. And that is that unfortunately, for most African-American people, not only was it not their ancestors' choice to come here since they were mostly brought across the seas into this country as slaves, but they have since faced systematic failure of that very important promise of liberty and justice for all. By now, we all must have seen or at least heard of what happened to George Floyd, an African-American male who was unarmed, handcuffed, and laying on the ground on his belly while four police officers held him down, one of them with a knee to his neck while he said that he couldn't breathe and cried out for his deceased mama. He died of asphyxiation confirmed by the autopsy report. Um, The officer who killed him kept his knee on his neck, blocking his airway for an alleged two additional minutes beyond the time that he was told that George no longer had a pulse. As you know, I'm a lawyer, and in law, we normally call that a crime of passion when, uh, when someone keeps shooting or stabbing or strangling or beating a victim after they have already died. Some people have questioned how we know that this was a hate crime based on racism. Um, well, isn't 
only because the perpetrator was white and the victim was black. He didn't shout out racist slurs. And there was no real indication that it was racially charged. He also allegedly had a really long record of prior allegations of violence and misconduct towards civilians. I'm talking about the cop here, by the way, of course. Um, Civilians of all races, actually, and all genders. Fair point, one would say, looking through uh, the narrow lenses of this particular instance. But this isn't about just this one time or this one victim or this one cop. This is about the racism that unfortunately exists in the very fabric of our country. And we can no longer run away from that, hoping that it will go away just because it makes us feel uncomfortable to talk about it and face it. If you guys have Netflix, then you should watch the documentary 13th, which talks about the 13th Amendment that abolished slavery but kept a very convenient loophole where if, um, if a person was convicted of a crime, then they would be kept as unpaid servants as part of their punishment or could be kept um, as unpaid servants as part of their punishment. This meant that after the Civil War... You know, when the Civil War was over and the South required rebuilding, but the finances were short. Black men were marginalized and criminalized and arrested for petty crimes so that they could once again be forced into working without pay to rebuild those states. The efforts made to skew society's perception that black men were dangerous and more susceptible to crime, you know, to violent crime, to become violent criminals, worked so well that it completely altered the path of opportunities for that entire class of citizens. It's a stereotype that has become, in a way, a self-fulfilling prophecy, and even African-American communities bought into it. And if you haven't watched this documentary, I highly recommend it. It also discusses our for-profit prison system and many lies that we have been told. But it's just too complex and there are just too many layers to talk about it here. So if you have Netflix, go watch 13th. Very worthwhile. I want, uh, you know, what I want actually to talk about today is this boiling point that we have reached with George Floyd's death. This tragedy brings to mind the killing of Ahmaud Arbery in Georgia, which did not lead to criminal charges for months until a recording had been made public. It comes several months after the, you know, after Louisville police killed a 27-year-old emergency medical technician named Brianna Taylor. After, you know, they burst actually into her own apartment, which is crazy to think about. And also less than a year after a Fort Worth police officer killed a Tatiana Jefferson as she played video games in her home. It comes just a few weeks after the five-year anniversary of the homicide of Freddie Gray in the custody of Baltimore police. And listen, I have immense respect and admiration for law enforcement. I would never want that job. 
And I am grateful for those who want to be heroes, those who want to risk their lives every single day to protect our society from violence and crime and to render us aid and to keep us safe and at peace. Many people who I love are police officers. My sister-in-law is a Suffolk County police officer and two close friends of mine are police officers for the NYPD. And I know that the intricacies of their job are just too difficult for normal people like us to understand. I know they are often in situations where they must make quick life and death decisions. And I know that they are human and that they are stressed and they are afraid and they are tired. And I get it. I know that they are scared that these statistically abnormal incidents of police brutality will lead to even more stress when it comes to situations where they must quickly figure out whether their life or the life of someone else is in danger and they have to use lethal force. I don't want to add stress to what's already an extremely stressful and unrelatable situation. I want to make that clear. But, 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 what I also notice is this protectionism, this mindset among many officers of always being on the side of the police no matter what happens, even in times when something unjustifiable takes place. I was asked before George Floyd's autopsy results came out if it would still be okay to charge that officer with murder if it was determined in the autopsy that George died of a heart attack. And my response was, of course. Because first of all, uh, there's something called eggshell theory in law, where you take your victim as they come, and when you are committing a crime, you become liable for its consequences, even if uh, there are consequences that you may not have been aware of, you know, that are per- pertinent to the victim, like a predisposition, like a, like a heart condition. But also, right, if this man, if George was having a heart attack at the time that those officers came to him or because of that arrest and those officers, instead of rendering aid, continued to focus on just detaining him, that is also against the ethics and the conduct that you would expect from those officers. So, yes, they would be responsible, but... That doesn't matter now, since the autopsy did reveal that George Floyd died because he couldn't breathe. And this notion that, you know, there's just a few bad apples in the police force should not, you know, and that, that, that those few bad apples can't tarnish the name of all police officers. And, and again, although from a human perspective, this may seem reasonable, If you think about the very nature of law enforcement, they can't have a few bad apples. They're not allowed to. Just like you can't have a few bad apples in the medical field. Because I'm sure we would not be okay with our local hospital saying, most of our doctors and nurses will do everything they can to save your lives. But there will be a few of them that might neglect or kill you. Just a few of them, though. Just a few bad apples. 
Or uh, if an airline company said, most of our pilots will land the plane safely. We only have a few bad apples once in a while that will crash the plane against the the mountains. Certainly, you would not fly with that airline. Certainly, you would not be okay with that community hospital, right? So cops, because of the nature of their job, cannot have bad apples. And even though it likely is inevitable that they will, right? Because we're human and that's what happens. It might even happen with the pilot in the hospital, right? Uh, the, the doctors at the hospital. But so even though it is likely and inevitable that cops, there will be some cops that are bad apples, that means that the good officers, right? The good apples must, must do the right thing and stand up against the bad apples instead of idling watching bad things go down or turning a blind eye to it. And listen, law enforcement violence is just one dimension of racism as a present and deadly force in our society. As shocking as these high-profile examples are, they represent the tip of the iceberg of a persistent racial inequity that constitutes a crisis. African-American babies die before their first birthday at more than twice the rate of white newborns. African-American women die at more than twice the rate of other women during pregnancy and childbirth. African-American adults suffer far higher rates of hypertension, diabetes, and other serious chronic illnesses. The life expectancy of African-Americans is 3.5 years shorter than that of white Americans. The roots of these and other mortal disparities run deep to the structural and institutional racism that shapes policing, housing, transportation, education, and health. The COVID-19 pandemic has re-exposed the consequences of this legacy. With less secure housing, less stable access to food, greater reliance on crowded public transit, more low-wage work without adequate protection, and less access to health care. Many predominantly African-American communities are suffering staggering losses. African-Americans are nearly twice as likely to die from COVID-19 compared to others in the United States population. The profound impact of racism in life and death demands a full response from every part of our society. Our own efforts must include becoming aware of and challenging our own biases. More research into practical solutions and more effective advocacy to embed these solutions into practices and policies. My husband is the CFO of the fourth largest development in the city, And they build numerous affordable and mixed-income housing that are such a joy to go see with our own eyes. When you see these little kids of different races and backgrounds and income levels riding the elevator together and becoming friends, playing in the playground downstairs, using the common areas, when you see the impact that that will have in both their lives, And in turn, how much safer, healthier, productive, richer 
our society's future will be for every single one of these lives that are permanently positively changed. And look, I am not here to get political. I'm not into the extremes. I'm a centrist, but I'm also reasonable and pragmatic. And we all know that inequality should only exist because of people's natural, you know, different objectives and motivations rather than because of a lack of opportunity. Not everyone wants to be rich and powerful. So that's great. Not everyone will be. But everyone should have the opportunity to get there if they put in the same effort. But again, that's utopia, and I'm not Pollyanna. And I'm also going into a different topic when I talk about that, and I want to stay on topic. I want to stay on the subject at hand, which is what happened to George Floyd and the aftermath. So what about these protests, right? Well, the protests are vital, and of course, we want them to be peaceful, which for the most part they have been. And the looting and the violence that we have seen has for the most part not been done by the people who are truly interested in bringing about change. Um, But when we see things being set on fire and destroyed, even though it is not something that I personally condone or advocate, we have to understand that, number one, the African-American community has tried peaceful protesting like peacefully protesting, and not much has changed, right? Number two, we as a nation destroyed entire countries after 9-11 as retaliation for feeling attacked. Was invading Iraq and, 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 you know, and, uh, and Afghanistan, was that going to bring back all the people we lost in 9-11? No. But we sure did it we did it because we wanted to send a message we did it because they did that to us and number three it is unreasonable to expect people to respect the rules of a society whose rules actually discriminate against them and in fact has they these rules have been disproportionately killing them or letting them die for centuries on end so no no i do not condone the destruction of property And I find the violence against innocent people even more appalling. But if we want there not to be any protests, and if we want there not to be any rioting or looting or violence, then we must fix the problem that naturally results in them every single time. We also can't be blinded by the distractions because we don't know who these looters are, who these people who are inciting violence are. And yes, there's definitely bad people amongst the good, but majority of people are good and we can't lose track of what's at hand. Otherwise, things will just keep happening. It's just not practical for people to call these people savages and say, oh, you know, send the National Guard, let's stop them. That is not going to solve the problem. One main issue of which I too was part of the problem for years, is the misunderstanding of what the Black Lives Matter movement is all about and why people chant Black Lives Matter. So many people who I know and love and admire have responded to that with the good old All Lives Matter thing. I used to be that person, so I know. I know where it comes from. And yes, of course, of course, all lives matter. Absolutely, that is true. And no one is saying that it isn't. But 
the reason we say black lives matter is because black lives have historically been treated like they don't matter. So instead of interpreting that chant as black lives matter more than white lives or any other life, we should feel grateful that we haven't had to chant that our own race's lives matter in order to bring about change so that they do. Because that is what the black community has had to do just to bring attention to the disparities that they face every single day. When we say all lives matter in response to black lives matter, what we are basically doing is dismissing their truth, their history of oppression, and the very real fact that they have not been treated the same as the rest of the population. We are saying, you matter just as much as me, and you and I have had the same exact experiences, so stop complaining because we're all the same. And that is simply untrue. And by saying that, we're being a little bit cruel. Just like when we're colorblindness, you know, when we're colorblind, many people feel that colorblindness is the right thing to do, that that's that's what's going to make you not a racist, right? They'll say things like, I don't see color, or I never even, you know, think of you of a different race. And that doesn't make sense. All that does is it suggests that perhaps there's an insensitivity, or at the very least, an ignorance to the very real problem that minorities face. And also, it's just, it's just a lie. Of course you see race. Of course you see color. We're not supposed to be colorblind. We're supposed to be conscious and aware. And we're supposed to embrace and celebrate our differences. And we have to be sensitive and respect our respective struggles, which are also different. And when it comes to the African-American community, they are greater. And if you don't see that, then you have to pause, reflect, and study history all over again because maybe you weren't paying attention. Look, I was that person, okay? And when I look back at the things I said over the years, every single time that something like this happened, I realized that what kept me from seeing things for what they were, or what actually, what they are, was fear. Fear that police officers would be reprimanded for acting in self-defense. Fear that police officers would refrain from arresting people of color in fear that they would be perceived as racists. Fear that there would be an increase of black-on-white crime because of the outrage that the black community would have after we admit that all those injustices are true. (laughs) But none of that would happen, you see, because nothing could be further from the truth. One thing we're seeing during these actual protests that are going on right now is the importance of validation and the closure that it brings because people want to be heard, you know? They're tired of being gaslighted. When police officers kneel in front of the black protesters and ask for forgiveness for the numerous unjust acts, many of which came from unfair laws that the officers are charged with enforcing and cannot actually do anything to change. When you're a police officer, you're following rules. You're following, you're enforcing the law that exists that was set forth by legislation. And the only way we change that is by voting. I get that. You should get that. They should get that. Everybody should understand that, right? But 
when we see that those officers acknowledge that trauma, you know, the pain, the suffering, that validation that they give when they kneel, when they say, I'm with you, I understand you, I hear you, I'm listening. We see the power and the beauty of that moment and the closure that it brings. And all of a sudden, there's mutual respect. My police officer friends and family, every single one of them, always says the same thing to me. People have to stop resisting arrest. And listen, I understand. I would never resist arrest, right? And I understand that there is sometimes a lack of respect for officers. Maybe there's, there's, you know, there's a lot of people that don't respect police. I understand. But what officers also must understand and what the community around officers, all of us who also care about our officers, who are our family, who are our loved ones, what we must understand is that even innocent people fear going to jail, especially black men, because historically that has not ended well for them. Before they even go through the system, before they even get their due process, people have been beat, raped, and killed in holding cells. Not to mention the lack of trust in the judicial system itself, which has kept innocent black men behind bars for lifetimes and numerous other times, has executed innocent black people. You should understand that fear if you can empathize with their cause, with their experiences. And I feel that we need two things when it comes to solving this problem because we need to focus on a solution, right? And I'm just talking about the police problem. And again, there's many other problems. But we need sensitivity training and we need greater interaction of officers and communities. If officers were more aware of the whys behind so many of the actions that they simply label disrespectful, and if the people in the community and the officers got to know each other better, perhaps there would be better rapport. And perhaps they would realize that they have much more in common than they know. Because we are all much more alike than we are different. And that happens, you know, it's amazing how that happens to solve so many problems in our lives generally. And perhaps this would end the whole earth versus them mentality that keeps us so isolated and in constant conflict. And that certainly keeps the black community and the police officer community in such constant conflict. To my friends who are posting the numerous examples of black on white hate crime, and of course that those examples exist because racism is racism. And listen, I'm, I'm one of those people that agrees that you know, there's no such thing as reverse racism. Racism is racism, whether it's from a black person towards a white person, from a white person towards a black person, from an Asian person towards a white, it doesn't matter who it is. If two different races, someone from a different race hates somebody from another race, that's racism, right? Um, I get that. But for the people who are posting those hate crimes of black and, you know, blacks who hate whites, who, who have outwardly said, I am killing you because you're white, and there have been numerous of those cases. Please remember that the outrage from the black community and from the white community that supports them is not just about the fact that 
there was a racially driven crime that happened. No. Rather, it's the impunity behind it. Okay? If you have an example where a black man or a black officer hurt a white man or a white person and went unpunished, then okay, share that. But if not, then please understand that you're not helping and you're not making any sense because this is about impunity. It's not just about the racism. It's about the impunity that goes along with this specific racism against the black community. And it starts with us, okay? It starts with listening, with empathizing, with familiarizing ourselves with the history behind things and recognizing and overcoming our own biases. We must each make a personal commitment to this work. Together, we can create a society free from the oppression and the injustice of racism so that we can all breathe. To George Floyd's six-year-old daughter, yes, you are right, Gianna. Your daddy changed the world. His death was tragic, but certainly was not in vain. And that is all we have for today. Thank you for being with me and for listening to me and for being a part of my journey. I am Camilla, your High Vibe Advocate. Looking forward to your outreach at highvibeadvocate.com and your follow on Instagram at highvibeadvocate. And as always, looking forward to our next meeting right here on my channel. See you next Wednesday.